I'll go ahead and pray and we'll dive in. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and uh, that by it we can not only uh, know ourselves well, but we can know you, Lord. And as we learn more about ourselves, I pray we would realize the the disparity between our own uh, position in this world and that of you and ultimately your son and that, uh, that he took, that we'd be impressed with you and humbled appropriately in ourselves. Pray that you'd guide our hearts and teach our minds now, Lord. In your son's name, amen. So we're in Genesis 31, and we left off at verse 17, and the uh, story to this point is Jacob has now spent 20 years uh, with his father Laban, out of that 20 years, he's gotten, in exchange, uh, two wives and a flock of sheep and goats and the rest that goes with that and has now determined that uh, Laban is not to be trusted and that in order to get away, he's going to have to uh, flee. He and, his, he and his animals and his Wives and children are all going to have to leave together in secret because he believes that Laban will not allow him to leave any other way. Up to this point, uh, Jacob has not been a super strong, determined man who makes decisions and then lives by them. Instead, he's been one that life has kind of happened to. He was sitting in his tent, cooking food, and his brother walks in and wants the food, and he's not an idiot, he trades for it, and he gets, ends up getting a birthright in exchange, and, and uh, so he's not completely innocent, but certainly I would say he hasn't done anything wrong there, he's just taken advantage of his brother's stupidity. Then you have the episode with his mother where she wants to see him get the blessing, something that God has already promised will take place, and she decides to manipulate the situation, and he goes along with it. Certainly, again, not blameless there, uh, but again, he's just kind of going along with what's going on. And then right after that, his mom says, you got to flee because your brother's going to kill you. So again, he goes along with what's going to happen rather than staying in the promised land, and God uses that episode to, to send him to Laban where he meets Rachel. He meets uh, Rachel and ends up falling for her almost immediately and again kind of goes along and it turns out that as we found last time as we compared these two women and their children and their responses to children that while Leah is hopelessly lost over uh, the desire for the affection of her husband, um, she seems to have a much better attitude about things than Rachel. That were, were Jacob to have taken a, a, an honest approach to choosing his spouse, he would have been better off choosing Leah over Rachel. And certainly, once he chose Rachel as his spouse, if he would have been smart and not just kind of passing through life, he would have realized that a switch has been made and he would have ended up with just Rachel and now he's got two wives and 11 sons and a daughter. So not completely, ah, 
Certainly he makes some mistakes along the way, but one of his biggest mistakes, I would say, is that he has not worked hard to pursue that which God has laid before him as what his role is. He has not actively taken part in achieving things for God. We're going to see that now in chapter 31 that God came and told him that uh, in verse 3 there, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. And uh, Jacob has decided that, okay, I'm going to do it. We're going to go back and he's set up and that's where we left him at that time. But you'll remember that when he did see the, the ladder of angels coming down and going up, his opinion of God and his promises were that I'm going to see if this is what really happens. Back there in chapter 28, verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, that's a lot of ifs, then the Lord will be my God. In other words, if I go along and everything happens the way he says, great, then God will be my God. But you don't see him saying there, I am going to accomplish these things that God has set before me to do. It's basically if these things that God has said will happen, then I'll go along with it. So far, that's worked for him. He's got the blessing and he's got the birthright. But now he's kind of having to take things into his own hands. And that's where we pick up chapter 17. We're going to take some big chunks today and get Jacob. We should get Jacob all the way back to the promised land before we're done today. So Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away with all his livestock and all his property which he gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob now is doing what God intends him to do. He's returning to the land. The father of the tribes of Israel has been sent to the area that eventually would be Babylon. And God is bringing his people back to the land of promise. And, and we're going to see that kind of repeat itself here as well, is this idea that the people of Israel were to be in the land of Canaan. And over and over again, they leave the land of Israel and they are returned to the land of Israel. This microphone is not apparently on right there. Maybe that's better. All right. So he's, we see them leaving and we see God bringing them back over and over again. Can anyone think of other instances where this has happened? Before this or after this, where the people of Israel leave the land of Canaan and come back to the land of Canaan? You name it. Abraham goes to Egypt where he deceives people about who, is, who Sarah is, but God then brings them back to the land of Canaan. Anyone else? Leave. Come back. Isaac never left, did he? Why didn't Isaac leave? Remember when Eliezer went to find him a wife? Abraham said, don't take Isaac with you. Because if he goes there, he's not going to come back. So you keep him here. So he stayed. The what? Forced deportation. When did that happen? Yeah. 
So Assyria and Babylon carry off the, the tribes and then they are brought back and we covered that in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the return of the people to the land. Okay, how about Jesus? Did Jesus ever leave Israel? Yeah, when, how old was Jesus when that happened? It's like a little baby, right? A little like two-year-old or something like that. A wee lad, and the wee lad came back. God brought him back. And God makes a reference even touching on that. So when's the big one when the people of Israel leave the land and are brought back? Egypt, right? Yeah, think of Egypt. So the people of Israel have to leave the land, and, and that's kind of important because that's Jacob. And Joseph is at now returning to the land of promise as well as a young, as a wee lad. Um, from being at his, at his grandfather Laban's, now he's headed back. Um, in fact, these are the characters that are going to carry us through for the next 20 chapters. We've spent a lot of, we've gone through generations and generations to get here. And now we're going to spend it on one generation getting back um, to the land and then leaving to Egypt again. So Joseph now, things are being implanted in Joseph's mind that are going to have an effect in the next few chapters as well in his life. But certainly God sends the people to Egypt and then brings, him back, brings them back to the land. Where are the Israelites now? Or where were they after 70 AD? What happened? Does anyone know? They were scattered again, the diaspora. They are sent out throughout all of the world. And part of that enabled the spread of the gospel. Part of that was a judgment against those people that rejected Christ, the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they rejected Christ. And I would just caution you if you think that that means God is done because he has given them their land again, even in this day, even in the times of turmoil that they have. And there will be a day when they are gathered again. God keeps bringing them back, and that's, we're in the middle of one of those episodes here now. So God is returning his people to the land, and, and Jacob is, isn't an idiot. He waits for Laban to leave, and he goes off to do some shearing. Now, it uses the word deceived here, and if you look in your notes, if you have a study Bible, it talks about stealing the heart of Laban. And it gets translated deceived. And so Jacob often gets labeled as a deceiver. I would say Jacob goes along with some deception in his life. But here he is stealing away that which is valuable to Laban. But actually belongs to Jacob himself. So it's an appropriate, appropriate word. But I, I worry that the word deception there may give you the wrong idea of who Jacob is here. And then it turns out, the other thing we learn is that, that Rachel turns out to be a little idol-worshiping thief. She loves her father's pagan gods, and these would have been gods that would have been like, they would have some sort of uh, reproductive or uh, um, fertility type uh, theme to them. Uh, that would have been very important to the people in the land and believing that's how you ha have an increased wealth and everything. And it's really interesting because we just saw that Laban agrees that God has blessed him and caused the fertility of his flocks through Jacob. And in fact, we've seen that God even controls the fertility of the sheep and the goats to the point of what color they are when they're born. 
Rachel fails to learn from this and she steals these household idols that we assume are along those lines as well, believing that that's what brings you children and wealth. And she certainly being one who has been denied all but one child, but even in that child said, great, I've got one, give me another one, um, would have thought that that would be important to take with her. So they head to the area south of where they're at and just east of the Jordan River, Gilead. So um, maybe, I believe, a little north of Jerusalem, across kind of at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, but not in the land of Canaan is where they are headed to. So verse 22 there, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. So Laban doesn't find out until day three that Jacob has fled and takes another, we'll assume that if Jacob is traveling at the normal pace, he's seven days away, normal travel speed. And so maybe four more days to catch up with Jacob. But I think the text later is going to explain that Jacob was pushing harder than that. So he's made even greater distance. So Laban's got to hurry and catch up. And so Jacob makes it to the land just east of the land of Canaan. And and here we have God warning Laban, now that he's caught up with him, not to speak good or bad of Jacob. Certainly when Laban speaks bad, it's when he's angry and he's acting out. But even when he speaks good, he's out to trick you and he's out to take advantage of you. So I love that God here says, no, no good, no bad comes out of your mouth in concerns of Jacob. He's going to do what he's going to do, leave him alone. There in verse 25, Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me? There's that word again. He's stolen his heart and carry away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with tremble and with lyre and not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? And Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen. So Laban makes his case that not only has he stolen his heart, but he's taken his daughters and their children with him. And don't, don't lose the fact that he uses possessive pronouns to describe his daughter's and his children, and we find out that this is even more than just the way we would say, yeah, that's my, my kids and my grandchildren. He actually believes these are his to be kept and held. And he gives this, this excuse that he wanted to send them away happy with the proper goodbyes. And so far in studying Jacob, I'm not sure that I believe a word of that. And, and I think that's 
that's legitimate to not trust what Laban is saying here, that that's really what he was worried about. It certainly would have been the appropriate response. It certainly is the way that he should have sent them off. But I don't think Jacob was wrong in, in wanting to get the heck out of there before Laban knew about it. Jacob here is brutally honest, and I really like that. I really like that he says he's now, rather than, than just apologizing and falling all over himself and, and going along, he's, he's actually explaining the purpose of why he left. It was because he was afraid, because he thought that, you would take, that Laban was going to take his daughters from him by force. And you have to remember here, Jacob has dealt with this man for now 20 years and has been mistreated by this man for 20 years. And I suspect, again, just as we have the feeling that Laban is not being honest about his concern of why they left, but he is also not being honest, or that, that Jacob has a, a keen insight as to what truly would have happened if he tried to leave Laban by going to him and saying, hey, I, I'm going to get out of here and go back to the land that I came from that Laban would not have let him go. Certainly God saw that and came to Laban in a dream and warned him not to do what he had planned. So verse 33, Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he didn't find them, the idols. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. So the search reveals no idols and Rachel lies about her health status. We'll leave that there. Um, to deceive her father and to keep the idols. Again, the, the character of, of Rachel is coming through and, and it's, it's kind of a sad, she's kind of a sad little sack. Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued? Now, when we're in verse 36, we should probably look back to verse 32 because verse 32 is the last time Jacob spoke, and this is kind of a continuation of that. And he says, in the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. So Jacob is continuing along that line. Jacob wants to clarify exactly to Laban and to the witnesses around them the argument he's going to make about his leaving, his taking the wives and the children and taking his flock and going back to the land that he's in the right and Laban is in the wrong. And now we're continuing along that. So in verse 36, he's asking this question almost as one who is in the defense in a court of law. What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? And now he's going to give a defense of what he's done and why he had to do it this way. Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? See it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. 
These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks, that which was torn of beasts, I did not bring to you, meaning I didn't say, hey, you, you, your, your sheep died. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by day, the heat consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been before me, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. And what had happened the night before Laban had seen God or had been spoken to by God in a dream saying, Jacob is innocent, leave him alone. So he attacks Laban for falsely accusing him, which in Jacob's mind, he has been falsely accused, not knowing that Rachel had stolen the idols. I think that's why scripture makes it clear that uh, Jacob didn't know that it happened. But he defends his own honesty here. As an employee, he, as he contends with, with Laban, he defends his willingness to be above reproach, even though it cost him dearly. That he defends against Laban the idea, the accusations that he's stealing by saying that Laban has actually mistreated him all this time. He points out that he's earned the daughters and the flock in spite of Laban's actions. And he evokes the witnesses of not only his family, his kinsmen, but also God himself as judging Laban. Not not just because he's invoking God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. So the fear of Isaac would be the fear of the Lord, that God himself, or that Isaac himself feared God, his his two parents. But surely um, God himself judged when he came to Laban in a dream. So he believes that God himself has already passed his verdict in this situation. Jacob is no longer the agreeable Jacob who just goes along to get along. He now contends for himself here where he is in the right. You can certainly be contentious and be wrong. You can certainly be the type of person who is constantly defending themselves and attacking those around you to get what you want, whether you're right or wrong. But here in this situation, we see Jacob contends with those around him, with specifically with Laban, as he stands in the right. Verse 43 then, Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children. And lest you think he thinks that's just... You know, because they're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He goes on, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. He's looking at them all as material possessions. He says, but what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So he took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Yeger Sahudatha. And Jacob called it Galid. Similar words, similar meanings. It's a heap of witness or, or a mound of witness. 
Not all that different from an Ebenezer. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it is named Galid and Mizpah. For he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to, to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called on or called his kinsmen to the meal, and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. So Laban, first and foremost, back in verse 43, doesn't see that he's done any wrong. He refuses to admit it, claiming that everything is his. He ignores the testimony that's been given, offers no rebuttal to it, but says, Actually, everything is mine, but I can't do anything about it. And so he sets a covenant between the two, and he's still demanding that he's in the right, and Jacob is in the wrong, and he stands in judgment of Jacob by telling Jacob, okay, but if you mistreat my daughters, I'm going to come get you. So he gives Jacob a threat, even though he's in the wrong. And then they go on to agree never to pass these witness stones that have been set up. What is interesting, that Laban, just to give you an idea, never really truly understood the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac because in verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. Well, Nahor was not a God-fearing man that we know of. Um, The God of their father, judge between us. It seems that Abraham is where this is all started. And so he's, he's not separating the big G God from the little G pagan gods there. And interesting enough, Jacob swears by the fear of his father, Isaac. He swears by God alone. And then we see this kind of in an Eastern culture, they would have then had a, a meal prepared and sacrifices made, and the covenant would have been sealed then. And we see Laban leaving in the morning, kissing his children and his grandchildren and going on his way. So we think that, okay, he's in the clear, he's made it back to the promised land, or he's about to re-enter the promised land, but they aren't even close yet. The last time we saw Esau, what was Esau's attitude towards Jacob? Yeah, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And that's what actually spurred Jacob to flee was his mom said, your brother's going to kill you. You need to get get out of here. Plus, it worked out because God, that's how God was going to produce the 12 tribes of Israel. So far, we have 11 of them. What is interesting here is that take the view of what's just happened and what's about to happen as he faces the thought of meeting Esau in the lives of the children of Jacob. So the children of Jacob would have, they're going to a brand new land. They've just snuck out to hide from their grandfather. 
and their grandfather's caught up with them, and he's, no, he's not happy. And then they had this big court-type situation where uh, their father is against their grandfather in some sort of legal battle. Their father prevails. The grandfather gets upset and leaves. And now they have to go meet this uncle they've never met, Uncle Esau. It would, be, it would be terribly frightening, and we're going to find out that these children are absolutely exhausted, not understanding what's going on or what's happened to them, where they're going or why. But they do understand that there's an importance to the land where they're going, that that's ultimately what's driving them, is the God of their father has driven them back to the land, that that's where they need to be. And now they've seen that while they have no clue about what's going on and why, Certainly, even if you told them at some of these kiddos are little kids, if you tell them this is what's going on, they really wouldn't have a full comprehension of it. They just know the God of their father and the God of the grandfather that they've never met is bringing them back to the land, and that's the most important thing. And so far, that's cost them having to flee to the point of exhaustion from the home that the only home they've ever known. It's caused them great pain and anxiety and a separation with the grandfather that they did know, a grandfather who appears to love his grandchildren, and now they're never going to see him again, and that must just have been devastating to them as well. And now they find out, well, there's more to the story. There's, a, there's an uncle that wants to kill us, and now we have to go meet him. It must have been just an incredible, incredibly difficult time for the kiddos as well. I think that's why God mentions in Scripture there before he leaves that Jacob explains to his wives what's going on and what they need to do back at the beginning of chapter 31. And, and even their return, God arranges by the mistreatment of Laban, Rachel, and Leah are much more willing to leave because they've seen the way their father is treated. Otherwise, I don't know how willing especially Rachel would have been. But now we have the the episode with Esau. So verse 1, now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named this place Mahanaim. So he has to face Esau, but God provides for him this episode of security in the presence of the angels. Once again, he's being reminded that God is involved with everything going on in this world. That it's under his control. You'll remember back that that was one of the main things that Jacob's ladder taught. And maybe this was another ladder episode. We don't know. Um, but we know the angels are there. And it was God's way of telling Jacob, yes, I'm sending you to this foreign land, but I'm going to bring you back. And now Jacob is being reminded that these messengers of God are coming and going, that they're here on the earth and they're in charge of what's going on. As, as the servants of God, they're controlling things for him and that this will work out in the end. And it gives Jacob this shot of courage that he certainly needs as he's forced to face his brother and, and he's at a point where he just really almost literally cannot go on anymore. God is so gracious for him to send this sign to Jacob well, more than a sign. Show him the reality of what's behind the veil, what's eternally going on, not just what's going on temporally, what's going on spiritually, not just what's going on physically. 
So in verse three, Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, so kind of south of, of the land of Canaan. And he also commanded them saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants and I have sent to all my, sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in his sight. So Jacob is notifying Esau of his return. He's not just going to show up at the land and have Esau find up find out later again. He's he's facing the situation head on. He's not trying to sneak in to the land of Canaan. He's not trying to trick his brother or get established so that he can defend himself. He's taking the position of a servant when it comes to Esau. And I think here we're seeing Jacob realizing the role he played in subverting the blessing. And he's taking, he's taking responsibility for what happened. He's desiring reconciliation with his brother. Also of note here, Esau is not in the promised land. Esau was not given the blessing that Jacob was. Esau is not the one who the seed would come through, of which Genesis is, is hurtling us towards. And he's not in the land. He is in the land of Seir. So again, he's south of the land of Canaan. And also in a land, an area, the Edomites, the descendants of Jacob, are people who, when receiving this, the book of Genesis, when Moses gave down, they would be like, yes, we know those people. We've been there and seen that. Turns out they're all cousins. Didn't realize that, huh? So he's down in the land of Seir, and he comes up to meet Jacob. So verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you. Great. And 400 men are with him. That's not so great. Why would you bring 400 men? To fight. fight. Yeah, certainly sounds like not just his entourage that hangs out with him when he goes on journeys, that this sounds like a large battle group coming to face Jacob. So, you know, not the best news you could get. Yeah, Esau's coming and he's bringing 400 men. Now, he did allow the men to return to Jacob and tell him that he's coming. So Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So there's that expectation that this may not end well and Jacob's doing everything he possibly can to protect the people. Maybe, maybe by dividing them in half, one group will get away. Not necessarily because one group can, can flee quickly, but because maybe he'll just attack the one and not know of the other. So Jacob then turns to God here. And he says, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. 
For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Just an amazing prayer, to be honest. And, and if you want to know how to pray, this is a great way to learn how to pray. And that is just pray the promises of God. He's actually looking to see, God, you promised this, this, and this, and this. I know you promised those things, but I'm afraid. I'm terrified that's what's going to happen. And honestly, if what I'm afraid of, which is the destruction of me and my family, uh, your promises can't happen, but I'm still afraid. I trust that this is what's going to happen, and that's what I'm relying upon. I'm turning to you and your promise, and I'm asking that you would make sure that it does take place. And I know you're totally capable of it, but still I'm afraid. Just the, 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 the bold honesty that he has in talking to God here. But the The key here is, is that he acknowledges who he is in talking to God, that he's unworthy of all the loving kindness. And then he goes on to explain who God is. God is the one who has been faithful. God is the one who has shown him loving kindness. God is the one who has taken him and blessed him beyond anything he can imagine, that all of this is because of God himself. And therefore, he feels comfortable telling God, you promised this and this is what I am asking for. Again, just, just a wonderful, as you break that prayer down into all of its components, it's, it's impressive. He sees all that God has done for him and he's humbled by it. He doesn't see all that God has done for him and is puffed up and made proud by it. He knows that his fate for these last 20 years was in God's hand to make him prosper. He admits his fear. And again, he repeats and claims those promises of God in the context that they're given. Now, for us to claim that, well, God, you said I would be, I would have descendants uh, as the sand of the sea. No, he didn't promise me that. Esau can't, can't pray that prayer specifically. Jacob can because there's specific promises to him. He can claim those promises of God. But even in doing so, he does so humbly, knowing that it's from God, And knowing the reality that's before him, he's afraid. So then verse 13, so he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. And and I should just, uh, rather than skip down, he's going to send these all in groups out in front of him. So just picture Esau traveling to Jacob. And all of a sudden, you see on the horizon a, a cloud of dust. And as it gets closer, here's 200 female goats and 20 male goats. You're like, okay. And, and we'll assume a servant or two of, of Jacob. And then a little while later, as you travel a little further, here comes 200 ewes and 20 rams. So all of a sudden, now on the horizon, you see all these sheep are coming your way. And you're like, okay. Sheep are better than goats. I like sheep. Good deal. And uh, along with a servant of Jacob. And then next, all of a sudden, here come 30 milking cows and their and camels and their colts. And then after that, there's 40 cows and 10 bulls. And it's like, okay, I, this is probably it. Nope, not it yet. Here come 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And so these are spaced out, and the, the gifts just keep coming as 
Esau gets closer and closer to Jacob. So, so Jacob delivers these into the hands of his servants, every drove by himself, and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between droves. And he commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? To whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves saying, after this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him and you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the presence that, go before, that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So he, the present passed on before him while he spent, he himself spent the night in the camp. So, as, there, as each gift is coming to Esau, the story is, who are you and who, whose animals are these? Well, they're your, they're your brothers and they're a gift to you and he's coming behind. He's on his way as well. He's not running. He's not hiding. Um, these are a gift to you. These are for you. And so as he's coming with his 400 men, he's also now accumulating more and more livestock with him. And before we think that Jacob is just trying to buy his way out of the problem, when the problem erases, we'll see whether or not Jacob keeps the animals or if he gives them to his brother. But verse 22, now he arose the same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. So he, arrives in, or he arises in the night and the children are separated, um, even though we find out later that they're in no condition to flee because they pushed so hard to escape Laban. Jacob here had to, this is, this is pure desperation and he knows it and he knows it's, this, this could end very, very badly. But he's still doing everything he can to help it turn out well. He doesn't understand how God is going to make this work out. He's trusting that God can make it work out, but he's still working hard to make sure it does. Even after praying to God, he goes through and he gives away all of these, this huge gift to his brother, and he does what it takes to protect his wife, wives and children. And then verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to them, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Just a quick note, I don't think the sinew of the hip tastes very good, so not a big loss. Hosea makes reference to this. Hosea 12, 1 through 6. 
Um, and this is all about God yearning over his people and desiring his people and understanding that his people are not perfect. And in verse 1, Ephraim feeds on wind. So Israel, another name for, for the people of Israel. And pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also is, has a dispute with Judah, another name for Israel, and will punish Jacob according to his ways, another name for Israel. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, this is talking specifically about Jacob now, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Ooh, that sounds familiar. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. God here is, through the prophet Hosea, is referring back to what happened in this situation that we're in, how he's actually contending with God physically in some form. And this would uh, be considered uh, the pre-incarnate Christ that this is happening with, and um, it's, it, it, Jacob's not a super young man here anymore, um, but he's, he's wrestling with God. And, and I think the keys here are not how the fight went, but the fact that he just wouldn't let it go. He wrestled with him all day and night. And when God saw that Jacob had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh and then we see, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob here is demanding a blessing. He is contending with God and wanting the blessing. And then we see this amazing statement here. What is your name? And he says, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And what does Israel mean? Did your text sell you there? He who strives with God. Apply that then moving forward from that moment on. Does Israel contend with God? The country of Israel, the people of Israel. We see it over and over and over again. Not only in the Old Testament, but we also see that when God himself walks the earth, that they're contending with God. And we even see it to this day. In fact, it's not only that they contend with God, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. There's also this idea that Israel will continually contend with men. And we see that even to this day. And whenever they, they, you see the nation of Israel mentioned, understand that the context of who they are is that they contend with God. Allow yourself to have that repeated in your head whenever you read the word Israel, not only in the Bible, but but moving forward, even in current events, they're constantly contending with God. It is interesting that the angel refuses to reveal his name. Certainly speaking, the name of God would not have been uh, allowed. There's a reverence there that I think takes place that prevents the name from being spoken. But Jacob has an understanding of who he is as he demands to be blessed. It kind of takes you back to the prayer where Jacob demands 
that God do what it is that God has promised to do. And his attitude there was one of humility and one of, of understanding of his role and, and who he is and the terrible strait he's in. So I think if you take that attitude there and you apply it here because he hasn't finished the confrontation with Esau yet, he's still worried about that. He knows he still needs God. Here he is contending with God, desiring to be blessed. I think his attitude here based on the prayer that was there is correct. But God doesn't just let him go. You don't contend with God and you don't wrestle with the pre-incarnate Christ and walk away unharmed. And that's the case here. He walks the rest of his life with a, a limp and they do remember exactly what happened in even the preparing of food moving forward as part of the animal is set aside to remember that not only did Jacob wrestle with God, but also, oh, by the way, we're a people that contend with God. A reminder that we contend with God is not a bad thing. I think we have, hmm, might have time. I just tried to move my verses up in my Bible by moving my finger up and it didn't work. So verse, verse 33, we'll read through this and just make some statements. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids and he put the maids and their children in front. So the two maids that he had children with. Then Leah and her children, and next Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So here we have him dividing up basically by rank. It's not by birth order, it's, it's by level of importance. That would not have been lost on the children, the wives, or the maids. And he passes on. And as he is approaching his brother, now his brother is seeing Jacob himself. And after Jacob travels a little bit, he bows down, stands up, travels a little bit, bows down. And he does this seven times. Esau's had enough. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. It's just amazing. The respect not only of, of, of Jacob, but also it's mirrored in his wives as well. And even his children, they come down and they bow down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? All these animals that just kept coming and coming and coming. He said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have plenty. Thus he, thus he urged him and he took it. Again, we see that Jacob here is not backing down on the gift. He, you, if you put Laban in this situation, as soon as Esau says, no, don't worry about it, Laban would have been like, good, it's mine. 
I'll take it back. I guess if you don't want it, I will keep it. But we here see that Jacob's attitude towards his brother is absolutely not. This was a gift for you. It will be a gift for you. You're deserving of this gift. I'm going to give it. So Jacob contends with his brother over giving the gift and he prevails in the giving of it. This time he contends with Esau, but it's to bless his brother. Jacob has not learned the greed and deceit of his mother or her brother Laban. And when under a great amount of stress here, Jacob acts with integrity. Then Esau said, take us, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But Jacob says to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booze for his livestock Therefore, he named the place, the name is Succoth. So somehow in the heart of Esau, everything has been forgiven of Jacob. And certainly we would see that as an act of God working in him. We see Esau's, Esau's reaction even to the women and children, knowing that they carry the blessing of his father through Jacob. In their humility, Esau even cares for these women and children. But we also see here the state of why Jacob was so concerned, and that is he had nothing left. They couldn't have fleed. They couldn't have ran away. They pushed so hard to get away from Laban that by the time Laban caught them, and even however much time passes before Esau gets to them, they are completely spent. They're unable to go any further. They've traveled through a harsh land, and they're unable to go anymore, and even to do so would put lives at risk, not only of the animals, but of people as well. But there's also this, this offer to leave some of the men with him. And, and it seems that Jacob understands that he's passed the two biggest problems that he was going to have to pass. He's gotten through Laban. Laban is now gone and now Esau has accepted him. So there is no need. They can now continue the journey in safety. So verse 18 through 20 then, now Jacob came, false, came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, which he came from Paden Aram, encamped before the city. He brought, bought the piece of land. This is the second time land has been purchased. If you remember, Abraham bought the land where Sarah was buried. And he pitched his tent from the hand, from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Again, a reference to God and his contending with Jacob. So he establishes his family in Shechem, buys land, and there worships God. God has returned him to the land as he has promised. God has safely brought him through those that were chasing them in Laban. God has protected him from Laban, who certainly meant Jacob harm. And certainly would love to have taken all the people back with him. 
to continue taking advantage of them. And now he's also met the people there at the land of Canaan and his brother and has prevailed there as well. Any foreshadowing in scripture is probably foreshadowing and should be treated as such. But it is a picture that we're going to see time and time again. But the hand of God is on these people to bring them there. And that certainly would have been what the original hearers of this text would have been interested in the most in hearing. And at the same time, hearing about their own personal tribes and how they began and where they're at. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much again for your word, for the opportunity to see the man Jacob. uh, A man that hopefully each one of us in this room can look at and see our own faults in, Lord, and see our own uh, immaturity as we saw him as a younger person um, going along and, and taking advantage of those around him and not really understanding you. And as he gets more and more mature, Lord, his faith is built and his understanding is built and he accomplishes great things because you are with him and you blessed him and he saw that and understood that. But at no time did he become a proud man. He always understood from that point on, Lord, that, that what he had was from you and that you can give and you can take away and it's all within your power. But he also learned, Lord, and I pray that we would, that your promises are true and your promises are yes and amen, that everything you speak will take place, even though we don't understand how. And I pray that that knowledge would do to us what it did to Jacob, drive us to our knees, that we would uh, pursue you, that we would contend earnestly with you, Lord, that we would attempt to do what is right, and claim the promises that you have promised, and then turn and rely completely on you to see those things carried out. We thank you for this example in Scripture, and pray that we would be encouraged by it. In your Son's name, amen.